0: The following resource is from Cambrian Park Baptist Church. For more information, please visit cpbchurch.org. Heavenly Father, in light of what is taking place this day in other parts of the world, we are truly grateful that we can gather like this as a people and worship you. We desire, Father, for you to be glorified in our lives, in this church and in this community in which you have placed us. We desire for the salvation that you've wrought through the blood of your Son to produce great fruit in our lives. We long, Lord, to be a holy people just as you are holy. I ask, Father, that you would use this teaching from the book of Acts to encourage us, to convict us, and to show us that path of righteousness, that we might pursue holiness For your glory, for our well-being, for the well-being of our brothers and sisters, and for this community in which you have placed us, that we might be the salt and the light that you have called us to be. Father, many of us gather here this morning in your true churches throughout the world, and, and we are rightly grieved by the movements we see taking place in the Ukraine. We pray specifically for the churches in the Ukraine, for our brothers and sisters there. This morning, Lord, that even on this Lord's Day, in the midst of the battle, they be able to rest in you and worship you. Father, we pray for all the leaders involved that you would be gracious and swift to bring this to an end, and that you would rightly judge those who are exercising unmitigated evil and that you would rightly protect those who are fighting for righteousness. Father, we pray that your church would, during this time, see the desperate need of the lost to be saved that without Christ, Lord, there is no salvation and there is no sanctification. And so we cannot be shocked by this type of brutal evil when we see it. Instead, Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit this morning, save the multitudes, that you would, those in our own lives, Father, those here in Cambrian Park, those in the Ukraine and in Russia, all those who do not know you, those who have been subject to atheism for over a century now, Father, you would this day, by Your Spirit redeem many. How glorious, Father, to think that out of such great evil You would bring grace and salvation to many. I pray, Father, that You would help us this morning by Your Spirit to recognize the power that resides in us, that we as a people indwelt by Your Spirit can do great things for Your kingdom, that we can, through submission to Your Word, walk in righteousness. Cause that to take place, I pray, this morning in our lives in this church, for as long as you keep us here to be that holy people that we are already in Christ. In his name, Amen. <clears throat> Acts chapter eighteen. If you're not there, open up. The title of the sermon is Sanctified Sanctified by the Spirit. Um, I went back and forth several titles of this, not that they mean much. I don't think you ever remember a title of a sermon ever, right? I said, oh, that was such a great sermon. I don't remember the title. Um, the theme is sanctification, and it's a, it's a basic teaching in our faith that I hope that we see drawn out from this passage, not only how God does it, but our ability to be sanctified in Christ. Um, history has certainly shown that, that mankind is a very habitual creature. Right? We, we do things for better or for worse in a manner of routine. We're even seeing that take place right now on the world stage. It is not uncommon for Russian dictators to invade other countries. We should not be surprised by that. We have a tendency to move and gravitate toward the routine. The problem is, as sinners, our habits tend toward self-centeredness and self-destruction, not the giving of life. And I would, I would imagine that most of you would agree with me that change, real, positive, lasting, internal change is hard. It's really hard. That's why every year we make these New Year's resolutions and then within two months or less, we no longer are following them. And yet, at the same time, we know that change is not only good, but it's necessary and it's expected by God for those made in His image. Most of you, when you were parents, if your child was one, you allowed them to eat with their hands. That was not a big deal. When your child is 15, if they're still eating with their hands, that is a big deal, right? They haven't grown in that way. Lori and I will be celebrating 32 years of marriage this April. Um, if after 32 years, you said, how is your marriage? You say, you know, we barely know each other, and we still have all these same immature, annoying idiosyncrasies. At least I do at, when we were 20 and we got married. Um, you would say, you may be married, but that's not a healthy marriage. That marriage has not matured. That is, it's stunted, it's unhealthy. My beloved, listen, when God saves his children by grace through faith, through the blood of his son, and then gives the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, God has a right to expect real transformative change in your life. He has a right to expect that because he's equipped you to do that. In other words, what we call sanctification or that God, by his grace, making us holy as he is holy is something that God expects of us and, and something we should want as Christians. I imagine not one of you wants to walk out and say, you know, I'm not changed at all by the word. I wasn't changed by the songs. I wasn't changed by the prayers. I'm the same as I was when I walked in. Well, that's not good, right? We want God to change us from the inside out. 1 Peter chapter 1, as obedient children... Peter said, Do not be conformed to what? The passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy as I am holy. Now, there's no more high standard for the Christian than God saying, Be holy because I am holy. How holy is God? He's perfectly holy, He's without sin. That is your calling in Christ. Now, in our passage today, the scriptures put a spotlight on sanctification, specifically progressive sanctifications, how we grow in the spirit of God over time. That's God's work. God just doesn't save us, forgive us of our sins, and leaves us in the place where we were. He saves us and he makes us holy, more holy each day until we what? Until we see Christ, we see him face to face, we become as he is, which is perfect holiness. That's God's work and that's Paul's work. That's why Paul's run around the Mediterranean basin, visiting all these people and all these churches. Verses 18 through 22, they're transitional verses. They actually, uh, Luke is telling us how Paul's second missionary journey ended and how the first one started up. If you were with us last week, we, were, we landed in Corinth and, and Paul is there with Priscilla and Aquila and they spent 18 months there teaching and preaching and establishing a very, very strong church, um, hence our letters First and Second Corinthians. In Corinth, <clears throat> well, time was up. He wanted to get back to Jerusalem, and he wanted to visit his sending church in Antioch of Syria. And so, um, he takes Priscilla and Aquila, and they get on a boat and they travel due east across the Aegean Sea to the city of Ephesus. Now, if you know Ephesus, that is the leading city in Asia Minor, and we'll talk more about the city in detail next week. But that's where Paul was trying to get. If you remember, at the beginning of his second missionary, he was trying to get south. And the Holy Spirit kept pushing him north, so you can't go this way. And so he goes to Ephesus. He's been wanting to go there. Um, He lands, he goes to the synagogue, he reasons with them briefly, but he still wants to get to Jerusalem and then back to Antioch of Syria, uh, probably to check in on Jerusalem and then to give a report to his church. So he leaves Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, and he jumps on a boat, and he goes back to Jerusalem. Before he leaves, though, look at verse 21b. He tells they, they, this, he, he received a much greater reception in Ephesus than he did in Corinth. In Corinth, he preached the gospel, and they tried to kill him, right? They brought him before Galileo and wanted him, wanted him persecuted. <clears throat> in Ephesus, they want him to stay, so he gets a positive response. And so he tells them at the end of verse 21, I will return to you if God wills, and then he sets sail from Ephesus. He goes to Jerusalem, he greets his brothers, and then he heads north to Antioch of Syria and he spends some time there, and, and that makes sense, right? He, he wants to let the church in Antioch, the ascending church, know all the great things that, that God is doing. But he doesn't stay too long. We're told in verse 23 that he immediately sets off again on his, this would be the beginning of his third, and, uh, third missionary journey. We, we divide these up for ourselves, but Paul was on mission his whole life. But the third missionary journey actually begins here, um, and it, it will take us through, the next couple chapters, through chapter 21, verse 16. And in those verses, it'll comprise four years. The third missionary journey, four years for Paul, approximately 54 to 58 AD as he continues to spread the gospel. Um, So he sets off from Antioch of Syria, and he starts to retrace early his footsteps. He starts to head north northwest, and he hits Iconium, and he hits, he hits Derby, and he hits Lystra, and then he gets to Antioch of Pisidian, and you probably remember that city that he was in, but instead of going north, he shoots straight east, straight west, across the Asian peninsula, because he wants to get back to Ephesus. Now, while all this is happening, while Paul is visiting the churches and making his way back, Luke gives us a, a little segue. It's kind of a mini story within the larger story of Paul's missionary work and he tells us about a disciple by the name of Apollos. And Apollos is a, a follower of Christ that lands also in Corinth, and he happens to meet Priscilla and Aquila, and that's the, the main part of our story today. Um, and what we're going to see is that he was engaged in the same work, the salvation and sanctification of God's people. And, and I would argue that today, my beloved, God desires the same for us. He wants us to engage in the salvation and sanctification of Of people, He wants you to grow in your faith that you might bless others to grow in theirs as well. Three key things I want you to see from the sermon. If we get these, then I'll be very happy today. Number one, sanctification requires humility. You cannot be proud and be sanctified. Number two, sanctification requires service. You cannot do nothing and be sanctified. I know these are profound, aren't they? Number three, sanctification requires the Holy Spirit. All right? So sanctification requires humility, service, and the Holy Spirit. theme of the sermon is this. God grows those who are willing to grow. God grows those who want to grow in Christ. In in other words, you're engaged in the sanctification process. You did nothing to be saved. That was all the work of God. But, But the means of grace that God uses to sanctify you, you work in. All right, point number one. Are you with me? I didn't lose you in the introduction, did I? I know it was long. I had to cover some verses, though, because we're not doing the interlude. Sanctification requires humility. Look at verse 24. <clears throat> now, a Jew, named, a, a, Jew, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, Alexandria, most of you know, is in Egypt, and at that point in time, it was also a, a center of great influence. They had a, um, an amazing library and a, a fantastic university. Most believe that, um, that Apollos actually was a product of the study there. They also had the primary seat, imagine this, Jewish Hellenistic Studies in the Western world. So if you wanted to, to learn about Jews in the Hellenistic world, you would go to Alexandria and the university there to study it. So most believe that Apollos has that background, that formal training. And we're told Luke tells us that he was eloquent, which means he was likely trained in rhetoric and speech so he could speak eloquently, and that he was competent in the scriptures. That, we don't use that word competent well. In the Greek, it literally means he was mighty in the scriptures. The man was a master theologian. He knew the word of God. And during his studies in Alexandria, Luke tells us that he he was instructed in the way of the Lord. So disciples had made their way from Jerusalem up to Alexandria and told here, Apollos, about Jesus Christ, and Apollos believed. He had heard and he had believed the gospel. And don't you love how I say the way of the Lord? What did Jesus say? John chapter 14, I am what? I am the way and the truth and the life, right? So this is the way of the Lord. Apollos understands it. He gets to Ephesus, look at verse, the latter part of verse 25, and Luke tells us that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now there's so much debate on what Apollos knew and what he did not know. What was he ignorant of? We know from the text that he was ignorant of baptism, and so we're gonna, we're gonna hold on to that um, because he was accurately teaching the things concerning Jesus. So what was that? Certainly that would include Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He understood that he would have been teaching salvation by grace through faith in Christ, right? Those are essential pieces of the way. You couldn't say that he was accurately teaching the way if we missed Christ and we missed salvation by grace through faith. And he was able, we're told, to take the Hebrew Scriptures and reason from them well and show the Jews that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He is the king that the people, the Jewish people, have been waiting for. But... We also find that this very learned man was deficient when it came to the teaching regarding baptism. Luke tells us he only knew the baptism of John. John who? Well, you know, John the Baptist, right? Now, John the Baptist baptism, it was, not a, it was not a baptism of salvation by faith in Christ. It was a baptism of repentance, remember? He called the people to repent of their sins, to make their hearts and minds ready to receive the gospel and be baptized by grace through faith in Jesus. And so they had been baptized in the baptism of John, but they evidently, um, Apollos here, had not heard of this being baptized in the name of Jesus. And of course, that was the great command that Peter gave at Pentecost, remember? Remember after he preached his sermon, he convicted the Jews, and they said, what? What must we do to be saved? And he said, I'll read it to you. Acts 2.38, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for what? For the forgiveness of your sins, be baptized into his death and resurrection, be baptized into the living faith that the gospel provides. So Apollos, he hadn't had that yet. Now, if you're critical like me, you might be saying, how can he not know that? I mean, that's so basic. Apollos, come on, you're a learned man. You come out of the University of Alexandria. He's got his his T-shirt, and he's got all his, his accolades on him, and yet he doesn't know this. Two reasons. Number one, this is the infancy of the church. Right, we're talking 21 years post the ascension of Jesus Christ. Church is early, right? But more importantly for you, so that we can all be humble in this, sanctification is progressive, is it not? Are you fully informed of all that you need to know about Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God? Of course not. By God's grace, we will actually learn something and grow today, and you will tomorrow, for as long as you are here And so it's progressive. It happens step by step. But there's a key here that I I don't want us to miss. Look at verse 26. Apollos, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So he knew the way, but they wanted to fine-tune it. They wanted to sharpen it up so he could understand it even better in his preaching and his teaching. Priscilla and Aquila are left there by Paul, to do ministry work in, um, in Ephesus, they hear Apollos speaking boldly and rightly identifying Christ as the Jewish Messiah from the scriptures. But they hear him saying something that's not right and very likely pertaining to baptism. There's a deficiency in his teaching. And so what do they do? What do they what do? They, do? They, they don't call him out in public. I mean, these, Priscilla and Nicola, you, you gotta love him so much. I pray you love him so much. They pull him aside, and it says at the very end of 26 that they taught him the way more accurately. They taught him lovingly. Now, Priscilla and Aquila had the privilege of being at the seminary of the apostle Paul, right? Paul lived with Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth for 18 months 18 months, imagine, every, every night having dinner with the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul going through and teaching. So they were well-educated when it came to the Word of God, but they were ill-educated when it came to the ways of the world, right? They didn't have university degrees. They were from Alexandria. They were, they were what? They were tent makers. These were lowly, blue-collar workers working for the kingdom of God, not well-trained. Now, the question I have, which you should have, is how could Apollos... Submit himself to them. This is Apollos. I mean, the very name Apollos means the son, God of the sun, right? This is I mean, this man, certainly, in his ability to speak, his education, his understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures, his, his breadth of knowledge, his popularity, and yet what does he do? He hears Priscilla and Aquila come to him and say, we need to teach you further, and he does. There's nothing in the text that says he resisted, he didn't want to. He said, how could you want to teach me? It's, it's me, Apollos, it's me. He doesn't say any of that. Instead, he comes under their teaching. And listen to this. This is amazing. Not just under their teaching, but there's a word order shift here that Luke does that all the commentators say it's probably not just stylistic variation. You know, sometimes you don't want to use the same order and the same words, so you try to switch it around. Up to this point in time, it was Aquila and Priscilla, and now it's Priscilla and Aquila. Why? Well, most commentators believe, and I would agree, that the primary person teaching Apollos was Priscilla, a female. You're like, oh, wow. Okay, one thing, they're tent makers. They don't even have university degrees, and now Priscilla's the one that's actually doing most of the teaching, yes. That's what most believe, and I think that's true. Now, so that we don't confuse our complementarian view of males and females, I want you to be very careful. Some will argue that this is an example of why we should have female pastors. The Bible obviously teaches against that clearly. She is not teaching with authority in the context of the church. It's private instruction in their home, number one. And number two, she's not teaching outside the headship of her husband. Right, Aquila's right there with her and they're actually teaching together but the indication is she took a primary teaching role. What I don't want you to miss is that this great orator from Alexandria, this educated man, this university man came to these lowly people and submitted to them in their teachings of the Lord. Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians chapter one, listen, God chose the lowly things of this world, Priscilla and Aquila, and the despise things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. My beloved, there is no boasting in anything or anyone other than Christ. Right? So, Apollos may have had his degrees and his speaking skills, but he understood that to grow and to be sanctified, he had to come under those who could help him. What was the result? Apollos was sanctified. Apollos grew in his faith. By spending time with Priscilla and Aquila and submitting to their teaching, he grew in his faith. Two immediate takeaways. Listen, number one, regardless of your training, oh, I want you to listen, saints, please, because some of you do not know this. Regardless of your training, your educa- education, your degrees, your number, the number of times you've read through the Bible in a year, the, the length of time you've been in the church, regardless of all that, you are surrounded by people who can speak truth into your life this very morning, this very church, there are people in here you are surrounded by. If you are humble enough to hear and humble enough to come under the tutelage of a Priscilla and Aquila, God can grow you through that. I would say God will grow you through that if you're humble, if you're meek of heart and mind. And that means that you can think of the greatest theologians in your minds, people from the past, maybe a Jonathan Edwards or a John Calvin, And maybe people of today, you think, well, who who could I, could I speak to a John Piper? Could I tell John, could I tell John MacArthur? Yeah, you probably have a lot to teach, John MacArthur, and he would say the same. He would say the same. It's important, my beloved, that we know how little we still know, right? I mean, how little we know, and how much growth there still is in our own hearts and minds. We know that, you know that. I was listening to a lecture Uh, Just yesterday, I was working, I was listening to a lecture, a podcast, um, by an author who, (laughs) oh my goodness, he, he was writing on something that I've only touched on, and I thought to myself, I know nothing, I know nothing about anything. I know nothing about the Bible, I know nothing about this faith, and then I had to remind myself, well, I'm Priscilla and Aquila, that's who I am, right, so we can be those lowly servants that help one another. The fastest route to stunt your sanctification, it's pride. You want to not grow in the Lord? you wanna stay exactly as you are right now, pride, pride, pride will do that for you. There's something else I want us to take away from this also. It's not only a call for the high and the mighty to humble themselves for the Apollos to come down, but a call for the lowly to speak up and help sanctify their brothers and sisters. Appropriately, right, they pulled Apollos aside, they didn't embarrass him in public, they brought him into their home, And lovingly, they they wanted him to know the truth, what? More accurately. They wanted him to know it for his benefit, certainly for the benefit of others that he would preach and teach you, and ultimately for the glory of God. Out of their love, they did this for him. And that means, my beloved, if you know the Lord, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and this is your first day of salvation, you have something to teach, you have something to share. All of us do. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul said this, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you, speaking to the church, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. They did not, Priscilla and Aquila did not sit there and think, this man, listen to this man speak. He's from Alexandria, he's educated. They did not do that. Out of their love for God and their love for him, they stood up, they brought him in, and they grew him in the faith. My beloved, whether you believe it or not, Every single one of you is gifted with knowledge, wisdom, life experience to grow your brothers and sisters in the faith. Every single one. So whatever category you pigeon pigeons hold yourself in, I, I'm not smart enough, I'm not well-read enough, I haven't been a Christian long enough. I'm too shy. Don't use that one. Don't use that one you have been equipped by God, uniquely qualified to sharpen a brother or sister in the Lord. Uniquely qualified. Sanctification, and you know this because you were here during our community series, it's a communal endeavor. Right? We don't grow alone, we grow in the context of community. Well, how do we do that? By brothers and sisters speaking truth into each other's lives. God's equipped you to do that. So the question for you is, are you and will you? Are you engaged in that right now? Will you engage in that love for a brother or sister right now? If you, let's, let's transport ourselves back to the synagogue in Ephesus hearing Apollo speak, and you're Priscilla or your Aquila, and you're listening. How, would you have done something about it? Would you said, you know, we've got to talk to him. Let's bring him to our house for dinner tonight. Would you have done that? Would you have said to yourself, we're lowly tent makers. What could we possibly teach a man like that? Let someone smarter take care of it. Let a theologian take care of it. Would you have said, you know what? It's been a long day. We'll talk to him later. I'm going to allow laziness. Or would you have intervened? Would you have brought him aside as they did to grow him in the way of the faith? The question, the answer to that is what are you doing now? If you say, oh, I would do it then, but I'm not doing it now, then you wouldn't have done it then. Does that make sense? Right? I mean, we we like to put ourselves in the best light giving a a hypothetical, but if you're not doing it now, you wouldn't have done it then. You'd have walked out of that synagogue and said, you know, I hope he figures it out. I hope he gets it right before he heads off to Corinth. I want to encourage you to strive for the sanctification of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Have that right love for them. Look around and see those who are in this church it might mean for you saying, you know what, I'm going to start attending a community group because I'm not. I might get involved in a discipleship group because I'm not. I'm going to start meeting one-on-one with people that I know and love so I can grow them and they what? They can grow me because I need to be grown by others. Right? This is God's expectation for his church. Without humility, there is no sanctification. So point number one, it is necessary for God's people to be humble if we want to be holy as he is holy. All right? It's necessary. Humility. Point number two, I pray you're still with me, sanctification requires doing. So in the Western church, <clears throat> I think in many ways we're probably much, very much like the Alexandrians. And we've equated knowledge with holiness. Right? The more knowledge you gain about God and the Bible and faith and Christianity, the more holy, the more sanctified you are. Um, now, we definitely would argue that knowledge is essential Right? Apollos is trying. He's eager in spirit, but he's, he had a deficiency in his teaching. So we would argue that knowledge is essential to our sanctification, but it's not the only thing that we need. Um, you have to know what you believe and why you believe it so that you don't have fractures in your faith and, and errors in your understanding of God. But sanctification, according to the Bible, requires much more than just knowledge head knowledge. It requires more than acquiring certain truths and doctrines. Look at verse 27. And when he, Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So growing and being sanctified in the Spirit requires our doing. It requires action on our part, not just knowing but actually doing what we come to know. Achaia, if you remember, that's the, that's the area surrounding Corinth. There was debate was he in Corinth? Was he in the areas around it? We don't know. Um, Gallio, remember Gallio was the, was the proconsul of Achaia, and he was the one that brought Paul. Um, he actually heard the charges against Paul. But he goes up there, and we know from verse 25 that he's fervent in spirit, so he's eager. He's eager to take the faith that he knows and now he's been sharpened by Priscilla and Aquila so he has even a better understanding of this way and he he goes and he wants to teach and preach the gospel in this area. And we actually know from 1 Corinthians 3 that Paul said of Apollos, you know, he, Paul watered the seed, I mean, Apollos watered the seed that Paul had planted so there's work being built upon more work, sanctification upon sanctification by God's people. And so he goes, he he leaves Ephesus, and he goes up to Corinth. The brothers in Ephesus write a letter. Letter writing's a good thing. We still do it today, church to church, and says, you know what? You, You can trust this guy. He's trustworthy. He's not a wolf. He's not a false teacher. Look at the latter part of verse 27. When he, Apollos, arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Verse 28, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now if you remember when when Paul left Corinth, um, there, was, there was agitation in Corinth to the way, to the gospel. And so Apollos shows up and they I mean, they must have been ecstatic. Here's a guy, here's a guy that can go toe to toe with the best of them. Right? He's well educated. He he's mighty in the scriptures. He knows the gospel now. And so what does he do? In public, he debates these Jews who are certainly harassing the church in Corinth and he shows them apollo shows them that Jesus Christ is in fact the messiah he is their king and it says luke says that they, they that apollo showing up greatly helped them well how would that how would he greatly help them well in part the jews were persecuting the christians in corinth so apollo comes along and says you shouldn't be doing that you shouldn't be persecuting them you should be joining them because Christ is king right and also his teaching and preaching sanctified them Right, so they're becoming more holy in their understanding of the fullness of the gospel. Certainly hearing, I, mean, I imagine Apollos was flipping through Old Testament passages saying, see, 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 he is the Messiah. He'd been prophesied to for centuries. He is the Christ. Right, so it grew them in their faith. Um, and in the midst of all this, Apollos grew. I mean, so sanctification in the context of the church, it's a win-win. If you strive to sanctify someone You will help them by God's grace, and they will help you at the same time. And so the community grows together. Years ago, the William Glacier Institute did a study. Listen to this. This is great. A study on memory retention, and the results are fascinating. Listen, they found that the average person retains 10% of what they read. (laughs) You ever wonder why you don't do so well on the test? You said, I read the chapter. I don't know why I didn't do so well. They retain 10% of what they read, 50% of what they see and hear, so I hope half of this gets in. You're listening. Now listen to this. People remember 80% of what they experience personally and 95% of what they actively teach someone else. You hear that? 95%. I think the parallels to our being sanctified are extraordinary here. So growing spiritually requires more than simply reading and hearing and seeing. If this is all we're getting, if this is the totality of your consumption of God's word once a week, you're not gonna grow much. You're just not. But if we want to be transformed into the image of Christ, then we need to what? We need to experience personally our Lord and Savior on a daily basis and how incredible if we all do what Paul told us to do in Colossians, teach one another experiencing and teaching one another will transform you. So you say, I want to leave today and I want to be in the express train of sanctification. How do I do that, pastor? I say experience and teach it. Experience it and teach it and you will grow exponentially in your faith. James, you heard this right already. James made it clear and we already know this. The Bible teaches this. James 1.22. Not, do not merely listen to the word and what? So deceive yourselves James makes it so simple, he says, do what it says. Do what it says. And then he says, religion that our God, God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You want to be sanctified? It's got to be more than your, your 15, 20-minute, half-hour devotional in the morning. It has to be more than a Sunday gathering like this. It is actively engaging in doing what God has made known to you. It is caring for orphans and widows. It is fighting for holiness in your soul if you really want to grow in the Lord. If you really what? If you really want to change. You want to be transformed as we talked about at the beginning. Now, one of the major criticisms in the Western church, and I believe accurate, is that we are people who sit and listen, but we do not do. We sit and listen. Right? Church attendance, even, even post, post-pandemic, is, is decent here. Um, in the Western world, and yet this is not sufficient. If you see, you know, I've been in church for 20, 30 years, and I'm just not growing in the faith. Well, if this is, again, if it's hearing and reading, that's only going to get you so far. We are called to actively do what God has called us to do, I mean, this, this this makes sense to us, right? If you if you wanted to learn how to play the piano, you said, Brandon, I wanna I wanna help you out. You play the guitar, I'll play the piano. It's gonna require more than you just learning how to read sheet music. Right? You're gonna have to take your beautiful God-given fingers and put them on the keys for a long time in order to play, right? If you want to be like Bill Pine and learn how to build beautiful wood tables, well, you know what? YouTube's only gonna take you so far. It is. You're going to need to get wood and tools and get your hands dirty and dusty if you want to be transformed into a table maker. My beloved, it's the same with Christ. If we truly want to be sanctified and become more as Christ is, we must engage in the work of ministry. We must do what we know we're supposed to do. So Apollos' work in Corinth led to the church's sanctification. It led to his own sanctification. So again, the question for you, I want, I want you to think about this seriously. What are you doing right now to sanctify others? What work are you engaged in? What ministry has God put upon your heart? What gifts and talents do you have that you're using to not only grow yourself, because in, in doing those, you will grow, but to bless others in that growth process? Ministries here in the church, ministries outside of the church. Now, if you're sitting there scratching your head going, you know, there's, there's really not much I can think of, Pastor, Pastor, not much that I'm doing, not many gifts that I'm using, or very, very little, then do not be surprised if you're not growing in the faith. Does this mean that you're not saved? Well, of course not. You're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, what? Alone. But you can go through this whole life a miserable wretch when it comes to sanctification. You can enter into the presence of God with barely anything to show the Lord or the fruit in your life, and enter what? As Paul says in Corinthians, by the very flames of hell. That's not a good testimony, (laughs) Right? we have Very little time, my beloved. I don't care how young you are. you got a little short time on earth. We want to use it for the glory of God. In whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, we do it for God's glory. Amen? Amen. Alright. Alright, so number one. You want to be sanctified? We must be humble. We want to be sanctified. We must work. We must do not to be saved. Number three, last one. Sanctification requires the Holy Spirit. So, Apollos goes from Ephesus up to Corinth, and while he's preaching and teaching and and helping greatly the the believers in Corinth, Luke brings us back. That was a little interlude. Now, Paul comes back on scene again. In chapter 19, verse 1, it tells us he, he passes through the inland country. So he made it up to Antioch of Pisidian, and then he shoots due west, probably landing in Laodicea, which he'll write about a little bit later, and then travels another 90 miles to the coastal city of Ephesus. Now, the easier route would have been to get on a boat from Antioch of Syria and travel across the sea and land straight in Ephesus. Paul does not do that because what does Paul want to do? He wants to, it says here, he wants to strengthen and sanctify those churches. So he does a little church hopping, not as we do today, but he was doing good church hopping, sanctifying saints as he went along, and then he lands back in Ephesus again. Uh, Look at the latter part of verse 1. He rises in Ephesus, Luke tells us, there, Paul, he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, Here, here's not the response Paul wants. No, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Right? That's, that's a bit problematic if you want to be mature in your faith. He said, we haven't even heard of whoever this Holy Spirit is. Now, some of the commentators argue that these 12 men were not believers, <clears throat> and that they were saved in this process of of being baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit. Um, There are a couple major problems with that exegetically. I'm just going to give you a couple. Number one, Luke identifies them as what? As disciples, right? And that word that he uses for disciples, unless distinguished as a disciple of John the Baptist, would be implied to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You don't call non-believers disciples unless they are disciples of Jesus Christ, number one. Number two identified as followers. Look at, it said they received the Holy Spirit when they had what? When they had believed. When they had put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's past tense, by the way. And so I I do believe, I do believe that these 12 men that Paul meets in Ephesus are believers, just like, you remember the, remember the the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8? Remember Philip's up there and he's preaching the gospel and it says in Acts 8 that many believed, right? But then, it's not until uh, Peter and John head up and they pray and the Holy Spirit comes down in power upon them, but we would argue that these 12 men actually know the Lord. They are disciples of Jesus Christ, even though what? They need more sanctification. They need to grow in their understanding. They, they have to grow in their understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. They say, who's that? You know, so Paul's gonna do some teaching on the Trinity, no doubt, um, but he says to them, <clears throat> he says the latter part of verse two, they said, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So they're ignorant of that. Verse three, look with me, Paul said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, verse four, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So again, we're, we're 20, 21 years post-ascension. The church is in its infancy. So these men had heard the gospel, and they, had, they were baptized in the baptism of, of John, which means they, they didn't have the fullness of that repentance and faith that Peter had talked about in the context at Pentecost and the receiving of the Holy Spirit through him. Um, verse 5, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and were told they received the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember what John's message was? John's message was he preached For repentance because the Christ was coming. And he said you need to repent and prepare to receive the gospel and then what? The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Listen, this is from Matthew chapter 3. This is the infancy of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist is out. He's at the Jordan. He's telling the people, including the Pharisees, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then he said this, John chapter, Matthew 3, verse 11, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, speaking of Christ, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit and fire. And so here in Ephesus, John's prophetic words are literally going to take place. Look at verse 6. When Paul laid his hands on them, they were baptized. The Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. So we would say they were true believers, just like John the Baptist, just like the 12 disciples, just like the 120 disciples prior to Pentecost. They They had put their faith in Christ. But now their profession of faith and baptism in the name of Jesus brings what? It leads to the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Now we've already talked about this in the early church and the apostolic age. God was pleased to manifest the power of the Holy Spirit through these what we would call ecstatic signs. The speaking in tongues, uh, prophesying, uh, healings, uh, um, interpretation of tongues. Um, Now, we believe here at our church that we are cessationists. We do not believe that these ecstatic gifts extended beyond the apostolic age. But I want you to know something. Just because we do not acknowledge the ecstatic gifts does not mean listen with all your might. The power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you is any less powerful to enable you to be sanctified than the, the believers in the early church. Just because we don't see them doesn't mean that that power is not there in Christ and that the Spirit is not there to enable you to do what God has called and equipped you to do. In fact, we we missed this. We had a chance to sing a lot about the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you you picked up on that today. One of the primary reasons for Jesus' ministry was to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in his people. When he was teaching about his departure in John chapter 16, to the disciples, Jesus said this. He said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now they're thinking, Jesus, we love you. You're here in the flesh. You're doing these great miracles. We're following you. People are being saved. And they they can't imagine him leaving being good. But then he said this. For if I do not go away, the helper, the helper who is... That's the paraclete. That's the Holy Spirit. The helper will not come to you, but if I go, Jesus said, I will send him to you. Oh, we need to talk about that a lot more for the next several years, I think, that God the Father through the Son sent the Holy Spirit to his people to dwell in his people. Now, I would imagine, my beloved, that we looked upon these 12 men and they said, we didn't, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. And we think, hmm, you guys aren't too sharp theologically. And yet, in the Western world, I think that we are in that same state of ignorance, right? We, we may not say in verse 2, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. You may say that and you may know it. You may affirm the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But for many professing Christians in the West, and maybe for us in our own church, we live as though he does not dwell in us. We live as though we do not have the power from on high. We do not live as believers, according to 1 Peter 1, 2, chosen, listen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for what purpose? To be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. How many of us, my beloved, affirm the reality of the Holy Spirit? We affirm the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and yet we live like the rest of the world lives. That's ignorance as well, is it not? In fact, I'd say that's even a worse ignorance. At least those 12 Ephesians said, we haven't heard of this tell us and we will believe and we will follow. We know it. We believe it. We profess it. And yet we don't live in accordance with it. We are, at times, we have a form of godliness, but what? 2 Timothy chapter 3, we deny its power. I mean, this is a form of godliness. We're gathered at church. It's Sunday morning. We're listening to you go on and on, Pastor. We haven't left yet. This is a form of godliness, And yet we deny the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in us. My friends, the the Son's work on our behalf, His life, death, resurrection, and ascension, it not only saves you from the consequences of your sin, which was a just eternal damnation forever and ever. It not only grants forgiveness for our sins completely, washes us clean, and then makes us sons and daughters of the kingdom. The work of Christ not only guarantees us eternal life now, that's knowing and being known, loving and being loved by God the Father now, and eternity with Him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever. All this work by the Son, not only for these things, but He came, listen, He lived, He died, He rose so that sinners saved by grace could literally have God dwelling in them. Now, there are many profound statements we can make from the Scriptures from a pulpit like this. That has to be at the top. That God the Father, through the work of the Son, desires the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. Inside of you, the Spirit of God. I'm not getting the response that I want right now. You realize that? Yeah, 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 Spirit in us. See? It's a form of godliness, but we deny its its power. Colossians chapter 1. Listen, with all your might, Paul writes, and you, You once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds before we were saved by grace. But now he, Christ, has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, sinners saved by grace, how? Holy and blameless and above reproach before him, God the Father. That's the end. That's the goal. That's the end game for us all. God's sanctifying us and making us holy day by day, so that in the end, he brings you, Christ brings you, but right before the Father says, look at these holy people by my blood, by my work. And the Father says, yes, these are my sons and daughters. J.C. Ryle talked about sanctification very practically. Just listen to this. Sanctification is that inward spiritual work which the Lord Jesus Christ works in a man by the Holy Spirit when he calls him to be a true believer. He writes, He not only washes him from his sins in his own blood, that's Jesus, but he also separates him from his natural love of sin and the world. And he puts a new principle in his heart and makes him practically godly in life. That new principle is a desire to love God and follow the ways of God. That practical movement in life is being holy as God is holy. So here's the wait, and I'm going to close. That means if this is all true, this is God's desire, Christ died to make this happen, you know Christ, the Spirit dwells in you, then if you are not growing in your faith, you know whose fault that is? You know whose fault that is. If you are not being sanctified day after day, more and more to the image of Christ, it's your fault. It's not on God, Right? He has called you. He has equipped you. He's empowered you. Having the Holy Spirit in you means that with God's word in the context of a community just like this, you don't have to be ignorant to the basic teachings of our faith. You don't have to say John's baptism versus Jesus' baptism, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? What is the full gospel? Is there really a hell? You don't have to be ignorant to these things anymore. The Holy Spirit takes the word in the context of a community and makes us knowledgeable in the ways of the Lord. That was our Lord's promise, was it not, to the disciples? John chapter 14, the helper of the Holy Spirit will teach you what? All things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That same promise is for you. We don't have to be ignorant. We don't have to be prideful. Through the Holy Spirit, we can be humbled and come into the presence of our brothers and sisters and say, teach me. You do know that, that you can come to a brother and sister and you can command them to teach you because they're commanded to do so by God? You can, what a great command. You need to teach me, you need to help me, you need to love me. They say, no, you said, oh, that's not good. All right, I'll go to someone else, but that's not good. You can be humble because in Christ, listen, overachievers, you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove. Right? If you're in Christ, you have everything. Right? You <laughs> what more do you want than to be a son or daughter of the living God? What more that you want to be a co-heir of Jesus Christ? You have nothing to prove. You can humble yourself. Regardless of how advanced you think you might be in whatever area you might be, you can humble yourself and come into the presence of the Priscilla and Aquilas in this church and grow from them because the Holy Spirit resides in you. It also means you don't have to be silent. You can speak up. Speak the truth in love to one another. Don't embarrass people. Don't do, don't don't do what um, Priscilla and Aquila understood they shouldn't do to Apollos in that gathering. Bring him aside. Sit down with them. Use the means of grace. Help people become hearers and doers. All right. It's the Holy Spirit of God that dwells in you. The Holy Spirit of God, third person not some impersonal force. I know we still have this weird picture of the Holy Spirit. Not some ancient, mystical, powerful power, although infinitely powerful because he is God, but he is the person of God. The God who made you. The God who saved you. The God who is sanctifying you even this morning. The God who knows what is truly best for you and wants that to be exercised in your life. The God... The person who wants you to be holy as God is holy. He, he, the person, dwells in you. Same Holy Spirit, my beloved, that hovered over the face of the earth before creation, bringing life and order out of nothing. He dwells in you. The same Holy Spirit that brought Words to the mouths of the prophets and the judges and the kings of old. That same spirit, the person dwells in you. The same Holy Spirit that gave Abraham the faith to believe dwells in you. The same Holy Spirit that equipped the craftsmen and the artisans who built the temple for God to dwell in. That same Holy Spirit, he dwells in you. The same Holy Spirit who told the exiles returning from Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem not to be afraid. He dwells in you. The same Holy Spirit that descended upon Jesus Christ at his baptism and commissioned his ministry dwells in you and commissions you to your ministry. My beloved, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then, then the power of transformation, it's at your fingertips. It's always there, always present. God desires it. If you desire it, then it will be. Real, permanent, daily changes in you as a person. Not just in what you do, but who you are, how you think, how you feel. If I were to ask you to take a minute, I'm not, because I'm going to close. But if I were to say, take a minute, and think of one thing you'd really, really want to change in who you are as a person. You'd say, oh, I got like 25, Pastor. I got 30. 30. That I really want to change on who I am, that I might be the disciple of Jesus Christ that brings God the most glory. Well, Paul is saying, Luke is saying that you can do that through the Holy Spirit. In Second Corinthians chapter three, verse eighteen, Paul says this, and just listen. I want to close. Paul speaking says, "We all, those who are saved, we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord." and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to, probably the best thing, to see God clearly, right? So remember, Moses would go up on the mountaintop, he'd come in the presence of God, and then he'd come down and he'd have the glory of God on his face, and he was shining that Shekinah glory, and they said, you gotta cover your face, veil your face, we can't look at you. Well, when we gaze upon the living God, when you, through the word and through prayer and through time like this and through ministry and service, the Holy Spirit enables you to see the majesty and the beauty of the living God, to dwell in his presence daily, to commune with God. You know what's gonna happen? You do that, my beloved. You dwell with God richly and daily and you will be transformed. I can say, I say no, no more. I can end right there. You do that. Gaze upon his beauty, see his majesty, see his goodness, see his holiness, and you will be, as Paul said, transformed into the same image, that is Christ, from one degree of glory to another. Daily, real, permanent change in you as a person. (laughs) Well, that's exciting. That's exciting. We don't need to wait for New Year's. We can do that today. Most of you want to be humble. Most of you want to engage. Most of you want to behold the glory of God. So that happens. Know well the Trinity and the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. Know that you lack nothing this day to grow radically in your love for Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we hear teachings like this, and I know for myself that I I want to be so much more humble. I want to know that my identity is fixed in Christ, and therefore I can submit to and come under anyone who has a word from you. I want to be humble enough to open my mouth and speak the truth to my brothers and sisters who need to hear it, that I might sanctify and grow them. Father, I imagine most of us who hear this know, yes, this hearing is good, this seeing is good, but we also know, Lord, that we're supposed to act upon it. We're supposed to do the work of the ministry. And in that very doing, Lord, we will be sanctified by your Spirit. We know, Father, that that comes from beholding your glory. And so if you would, for me, for my brothers and sisters here, for our families and our friends and for your true churches throughout the world, Lord, cause us to behold your glory more and more each day so that we might be transformed from one degree of glory to another as Christ is. Father, I pray that this would be a very encouraging time for us, regardless of where we are, that we would see, Lord, that we are equipped, fully able in the power of the Spirit to be a holy people, just as you are holy. So do that great work here for us, Lord, for our own sanctification, for our brothers and sisters, as we collectively sanctify one another, and certainly for this mission field. They need to see a people that do not look like the rest of the world. They need to see a holy people. Make us that, I pray, for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you would like more information on our church, please visit cpbchurch.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.